be uh, this morning. On October 2nd, 2006, 20-year-old firefighter and EMT Matt uh, Swadzell had just gotten off of a 24-hour shift at his station in uh, North Georgia. He was dead tired, and he was confident he could make it home safely, but he was wrong. He was just a couple of miles from home, and he didn't realize he was falling asleep until it was too late. He drifted into oncoming traffic and hit another car, one driven by June Fitzgerald, a 30-year-old wife and mother who was pregnant with her second child. She was killed in the accident, and her son, who was due in just two months, never got to take his first breath. Their little daughter, uh, Faith, in the back uh, seat survived. The accident haunted the widower, Eric, Fitzgerald, and the driver, of course, Matt, for two years. They didn't talk to each other. And then they met for the first time, providentially, in a parking lot grocery store as Matt was buying a sympathy card near the second anniversary of the accident to give to Eric. Eric saw him and went over to Matt in the parking lot. And when face-to-face with a man who accidentally killed his wife, an unborn son, he could only hug him. Eric was a pastor and had preached on forgiveness, and he had to live it now. The two started meeting for meals, and Matt started going to Eric's church. Over 15 years later, they remained close friends. When given the choice to exact vengeance or demonstrate Christ's grace, Eric chose grace. He went to the court hearing and pleaded with the judge to be lenient on on Matt. Forgiveness. We have a number of stories of forgiveness in our culture, in our country, in the history of the world. And the forgiving church shows Christ. And we could say the opposite. The unforgiving church doesn't show Christ. Where is the world going to see Christ lived out in the lives of people? It has to be with a church that forgives. And we're going to talk about forgiveness today from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll just look at uh, seven verses, verses 5 through 11. We just read uh, this passage. And we need this passage to demonstrate to see how our forgiveness can demonstrate Christ. Some people may never read their Bible. They may never want to read their Bible. But if they can see a forgiving spirit in us, people that have hurt us, and we aren't willing to exact vengeance on them, but instead give them what God has given us, we can demonstrate Christ. Today, We'll look at the forgiving church and how it demonstrates Jesus Christ. And we'll see in verses 5 to 8 that the forgiving church demonstrates Christ's love. Verses 5 to 8. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. The forgiving church demonstrates Christ's love. How does it demonstrate Christ's love? Verses 5 and 6 
It shows Christ love cares. What is Paul writing here in verses 5 and 6? If anyone has caused pain, now this is not the pain that he is talking about having to write the painful letter earlier. He's talking about the pain of this person back in 1 Corinthians 5 who was living with his stepmom in gross immorality. And Paul wrote his first letter to mention that in 1 Corinthians 5, 8. And then he writes, he mentions the, the story uh, for us to read in 1 Corinthians and what to do with this man to deliver him over to Satan and allow him to be disciplined out of the church. And the church does that. And according to uh, 2 Corinthians, this man is sorrowful. He is repentant. He is um, not living in incest or gross immorality any longer and has fully repented. And so Paul is writing about this man and how the, what the church should do uh, with this man, and obviously they're supposed to treat him with love. The sinning member of 1 Corinthians 5 has been disciplined and delivered to Satan. He probably has scars on his body, in his heart, because he was delivered to Satan to learn not to uh, sin against God. His immorality was mentioned in the first letter of 1 Corinthians 5.8, and then in 1 Corinthians, anytime a member of the body of Christ is unrepentant after Matthew 18 church discipline, the whole body suffers from the discipline. When your parents disciplined you and said, this hurts me more than it hurts you, I did not understand that until I was a parent, and now I understand it. To show love despite having to discipline is a hard thing. It's a balance to consistently show love. And when someone is, dis- is unrepentant in the body of Christ and the church has to follow Matthew 18, which they one person uh, tells them, confronts them, they don't listen, he takes two, probably an elder with him, and then they still don't listen, then they tell the whole church, and the whole church gathers around this unrepentant sinner and says, turn from your sin, this is not right, this is clearly unbiblical, you are destroying yourself, and we're not going to allow you to destroy our church as well. And if you won't repent, we will discipline you out. And given time, maybe a week or two, and the person doesn't repent, and the church meets and says, okay, this person is no longer a member, we're not going to treat them as a member of our, of our body. And... Um, until they repent. And I've heard from another pastor around here that his church, they write out what repentance looks like because someone who is in sin is blinded by their sin and is stubborn in their sin, often doesn't know how to repent or doesn't care. And so the leadership at at this church uh, near us here, they write out what repentance looks like. And whenever someone is willing to repent and agrees uh, to repent privately and then publicly before the church, and they are welcomed back in. So the right amount of time. So the, the love that the Corinthians showed God by purifying their church now needs to be directed to the repentant sinner. The right amount of time has passed and sufficient evidence of godly sorrow that led to repentance. And we'll see more about godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. But sorrow is mentioned here as part of the repentance. There is probably fruit of repentance... The man is not living with his, his uh, stepmom anymore, uh, and others that were his friends probably uh, evidenced that, and he is sorry uh, for the pain that he caused this church and caused uh, Paul in having to write these two letters. The majority has exercised a discipline, 
Uh, there's fruit of repentance that the majority that exercise the discipline could observe. So what is this that verses 5 and 6 are telling us? Christ's love cares. It cares for people. How does Paul show that he cares and their love should care? He says, I don't want to put it too severely, but this person has caused pain to all of you. Now, if you were this man reading 2 Corinthians, and when Paul said, the whole church has suffered because this guy's church discipline, and then Paul writes that little phrase, but not to put it too severely, it's like, okay, all right. (laughs) They didn't come after me harshly or severely. It was so the church would stay pure and the the church could demonstrate God's love uh, to this man and holiness because the church is representing God on the earth. And now they're encouraged to show God's love and care. And Paul evidenced that by saying not not to put it too severely. And then verse 6, but such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you have to know when you're punishing someone, what is enough punishment? What is, how much time uh, is, is supposed to be given that the crime has deserved? And not every crime is equal, okay? Um, and so we as parents would have to come up with uh, situations that we would tell our kids, okay, if you do these three things, uh, this is an automatic spanking automatic. We're not going to argue. We're not going to fuss. If we're in a place where we can't uh, do that, uh, you'll get a a mark on your hand, and then we'll go home, and we'll deal with it there. All right? So this is what God's love uh, cares to discipline. And here, Paul is saying, for such a one, this punishment by the majority, the majority of the Corinthian church recognized this man's sin. They followed what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5. And they kicked him out of their church for a time. And the, the amount of time was enough. The severity of the discipline was enough. So we have to ask ourselves, does our discipline mirror Christ's love? Do we communicate lovingly how one person's sins causes pain for the whole group? One person's sin in a classroom pains the whole classroom. One person's sin in a family pains the whole family. One person's sin in a church pains the whole church. Are we careful to know when the discipline is, as Paul would say here, enough? Are we confident in our discipline that we are doing Christ's work? Let's hold our hand here and go back to Matthew 18, as I mentioned it. And Matthew 18 tells us about church discipline. Before the church was even established, God had designed the church to reflect His character, His holiness, and his love. And the right discipline, the right amount of discipline, the right way that we discipline, we are, can be very confident that we are doing Christ's work on earth. It doesn't, it's not easy, um, but it is Christ's work. And a familiar verse that we often quote at a prayer meeting uh, is misquoted at a prayer meeting, but is correctly quoted in a church discipline setting. All right. So Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, tell him his fault between you and him alone. This is a sin that's clearly in Scripture that breaks God's law. And if he listens, that means he, he repents, then you have gained your brother. You're forgiven, 
No one else needs to know about it. Private sin, private reconciliation. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, probably spiritually mature people, like a godly friend who would encourage them, show them the scripture, plead with them like Christ, and encourage them to repent. Don't keep sinning. You're destroying yourself and others. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So everybody in the church, so this is someone who is unrepentant privately with one person, privately with two or three, now publicly. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax tax collector. So someone who is kicked out of the church and is uh, not part of the body. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Why is he talking about heaven here? Because heaven agrees with church discipline. That's what he's saying. If you as a church recognize here is clear scripture, here is clear violation of scripture, here is clear unrepentant violation of scripture, and all the church recognizes it, all the church is encouraging this person to repent, and they still don't repent, we say, okay, this person likely is not a believer, or they are not a welcome to be in our church any longer, and heaven is behind a church that's doing that. Verse 19, again, I say to you, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And this is church discipline. This is not church prayer meeting. This is church discipline. And this is the care that the Corinthian church showed this man. Paul wrote about it. They exercised the church discipline, and now the, the discipline has worked, and the majority, the punishment by the majority, is enough, back in 2 Corinthians uh, 2. So Christ's love shows Christ's care. The second thing, and this is in the context of forgiveness, so how do we treat this person when he comes back? Okay, do we treat him like the black sheep? like the person who um, is still an outcast, but you're welcome to sit in the back, or if they had an extension service like we did, you're welcome to sit in the extension service. You're welcome to watch online. Okay. No, you're welcome back completely to rejoin us. Verse 7. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Oh, comfort. Wait a minute. We just heard about comfort. Ten times we heard about comfort in uh, verses 3 to 7 of chapter 1. And that's the same word here. Come alongside to help. What kind of comfort does someone need who has been kicked out of a church and repentant and waiting for that church to welcome him back? You need Christ's love that comforts. Someone like Barnabas, who is known for his encouragement, would probably be sent, and he was given Barnabas as a name, a nickname, because of he was the son of encouragement in the book of Acts. And so when Paul was not trusted or needed encouragement as a new believer, Barnabas was sent. So Christ's love comforts. 
The church turned away from this man, now should turn back to him since he repented. Forgive has the word, two words, for and give. We often don't think of forgiving as giving, but it is giving something. What is forgiveness? It's giving without any expectation of receiving. That's what forgiveness is. You can see this same word, forgive, in Luke 7. If you want to turn with me to Luke 7, verse 42. I believe Jesus is speaking. Luke 7. Luke 7, verse 41, Jesus tells a short story about a sinful woman who loves him much and has uh, anointed, um, anointed his feet and wiped his feet, Christ's feet, with her hair. She was a sinner. Everyone knew she was a sinner. Um, probably like a prostitute. And verse 41, a certain Jesus tells a story to the people there who are indignant about Jesus letting this woman touch him. A certain moneylender had two debtors, and one owed him 500 denarii. That's almost two years' wages, so over $100,000. And the other, 50, so $10,000. If someone forgave you $100,000 or $10,000, in today's money. When each of these guys could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Canceled the debt is our word there of forgiveness. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose to whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And he forgives this woman. And he says, verse 47, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. You know, the older I get, the more I realize that I've been forgiven. The more we read God's word, the more we realize we have not been forgiven a little. All of us have been forgiven a lot. We are so sinful. We think sinful thoughts. We say sinful things. We respond sinfully to other people around us who are sinning. We are just so corrupted by sin, internally, externally, and we need God's forgiveness. So back in 2 Corinthians, when debt is, is, the, um, is the context, then canceling or forgiving the debt, when, and you know Ephesians 4.32, we are to forgive as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. That's the same word here as well. So to forgive is to give without any expectation of receiving. Verse 8. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him because I don't want him to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So here is someone... He is sorry for his sin. He is sorry for the pain that he has caused his family, his church family. He is sorry for the, the pain it caused the, um, the uh, church um, in their testimony in the neighborhood of Corinth. And he is fully repented. He is sorrowful. 
But if you are fully repentant and you want your church to forgive you and they say, not yet, just wait, this person is going to say, how much longer? How much more? I can't give you any more sorrow. I can't be any more biblical in my, for, in my asking for forgiveness and being sorrowful and repentant. I don't know what more I can do. What more do you want? So Paul says in them to forgive and to comfort him. And the word beg in verse 8 is the same word comfort that was someone who is coming alongside to ask for something. And you'll see back in um, Luke 8, 41, when Jairus, his daughter's at the verge of death, he comes and begs Jesus, same word. He comes alongside Jesus, but not to, to ask for help. He asks, he's asking um, not for help, but he's at, yeah, for Jesus to help him. Not to give help, but to ask for help is what I was trying to say. All right? So that's the begging here. So Paul is saying, I'm coming alongside you now, and I want you to reaffirm your love for him. So comfort is coming alongside to help, or could be translated beg, depending on the context. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, 2 Corinthians 7. We'll get to that in a few months. But being sorrowful for sin and not receiving forgiveness leads to being overwhelmed. And that's what you see here in verse 7. So we're, if you just got back from junior choir, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Evaluation for us. Forgiveness is expensive because it's giving something without expecting something in return. Forgiveness absorbs the pain of other people's sin. I'm going to say that again. Forgiveness absorbs the pain of other people's sin. If someone sins against you and they hurt you physically, emotionally, and you forgive them, you are absorbing the pain that their sin caused. But that's what our God did at the cross. We sang about it. It's glorious. Our chains are gone. Because Jesus absorbed all the pain for our sin and offers us forgiveness. So when Jesus tells his followers in Ephesians 4, verse 32, be ye kind to one another, forgiving them and having a tender heart, forgiving them even as God, in, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. The world cannot see forgiveness, cannot see Christ like they can see when believers who have hurt each other, angry at each other, apart from each other for a time, come back together and offer forgiveness in light of all that we have been forgiven. And we as believers absorb the pain that other people's sin has caused us and say, you know what? I'm not going to treat you like a sinner. I'm not going to treat you like an outcast that you have been for a time. But now that you're repentant, I will offer you forgiveness because my God has forgiven me much. And when we offer forgiveness, this is Christ's love in action. This is us absorbing the pain 
of other people's sins. This also gives them freedom. So if people are free, our chains are gone, right? But if we have all, if you've been married any length of time, you know what it's like to be in the doghouse. It feels like a chain. Right? You're chained to the doghouse. <laughs> and, and your spouse has you because you have sinned against him or her. But whenever the chain is gone and the doghouse is no longer in the conversation and the shoulder is not cold anymore and the relationship is restored, what happened is you have been forgiven. You've asked for forgiveness. They have been granted forgiveness. And now that forgiveness gives you freedom. This is the best way to show the world what our forgiving God and Savior are like by giving freedom to repentant sinners. Are you and I willing to pay the high price of releasing someone who has sinned against you and is truly sorry? Are you ready to stop doing the easy thing, which could be holding a grudge, getting bitter and angry at them, reminding them of their sin constantly and never letting them forget it? Or are you ready to respond like Christ? What does Christ do with our sin when we're forgiven? As far as the east is from the west, into the depths of the ocean, never to be remembered against us again. And Jesus told several other stories about forgiveness, and we're not going to mention them, but you can go back and read them in the Gospels. Forgiveness shows Christ's love, a Christ's love that cares and Christ's love that comforts. The forgiving church also demonstrates Christ's unity because God's design for the church is that we would be a body, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 12. And though there are many members, we're one in Christ. We're unified, and we have very many different gifts and talents. When one member suffers, we all suffer. When one member is rejoicing, we're all rejoicing. And so there is this unity that Paul uh, fought for, you could say, in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, because that church was very disunified, disorganized, very unloving and selfish, and they needed a lot of help to be unified, and they're unified around the gospel, around the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Savior, and then they are to be abounding in the work of the Lord. So let's go back to our text of Scripture here and look at verse 9. The forgiving church demonstrates Christ's unity and Christ's unity in verse 9 is an obedient unity. Verse 9, For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. He wrote to them? Well, probably he's writing about the tearful letter that he just mentioned in verse 4. So same context. And the tearful letter of 2 Corinthians 2.4 is in light here in 2.9. With Titus's joyful report, as Titus comes back before Paul writes 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 7.13, we, we read about Titus's joyful report. So the tearful letter worked. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians, and that helps the church to be unified. He writes this tearful letter, and uh, they didn't quite, weren't quite unified, didn't know what to do with this guy who was kicked out of the church and to, to welcome him back or not. And so Paul writes and says, I, I, this is why I wrote, so that I might test you to know whether you are obedient in everything. And from what he says later in 2 Corinthians 7, they were obedient. 
Paul's previous letters from 1 Corinthians 5, all of 1 Corinthians and this tearful letter were obeyed. And this test could be an evaluation or an evaluation of one's character. Both uh, could be uh, what he's talking about here. Testing their obedience is the third reason for the letter. What were the first two reasons for this tearful letter? Look back at uh, chapter 2, verse 3. And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. So I wrote so that I, I wouldn't suffer pain. And then verse Four, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So I, and that, this is the third reason. Those are the first two. And the third reason is so that they would be tested to see if they would be obedient in everything. And based on the reaction of Titus later, uh, they responded well and were obedient. So Christ's unity obeys. God gives the church leaders to help the church to follow Christ. And as these leaders are following Christ, like 1 Corinthians 11 says, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. If Paul and the other leaders of Corinth are following Christ and the church is following them, there's unity. And the world can see that unity because people are being obedient. So it is today, as God has designed our church with elders and deacons uh, to lead in shepherding, uh, as the elders do, to lead in serving as the deacons do. And if you will follow us as we follow Christ, there will be great unity here. And the world can say, why don't you guys get really angry and, and yell and scream at your business meetings? Well, we don't have to, okay? I would trying to, and there are times that you might want to yell and scream, and I'm glad that you don't. Um, but we try to follow Christ. And try to show um, unity here. Verse 10. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Remember back in verse 23 of chapter 1, I call God to witness against me. Here, he is bringing Christ's presence to witness what, is, what does he want Christ's presence to witness going on between him and the church? Anyone whom you forgive. Now, Paul's anticipating that the man who was kicked out of the church is forgiven and brought back in. So he's saying, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive too. So Paul said, when I come, I'm not going to treat this person whom you have forgiven differently than you've treated them. I'm going to treat them the same. And then verse 10 continues, indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. The reason, or the, uh, the unity by trust that Paul is displaying. So these people have to dis display trust in Paul to obey, and now Paul is displaying trust in them. Um, and so unity by trust that Paul is displaying with the Corinthians is strengthening their bond with him. This bond's going to be challenged in this book because people are going to say, Paul is not trustworthy, don't listen to him as an apostle. And there's other things that we're going to see later in the book. But for now, Paul realizes this bond of trust between him and the Corinthians is strong. Any relationship that has a bond of trust is a strong relationship. And here, Christ's unity strengthens this bond between Paul and the Corinthians. It, it mirrors the bond that the church has with Christ when they discipline an unrepentant member that we just saw in Matthew 18. 
as Paul agrees with the forgiving Christians, he does so for the Corinthians' sake in the presence of Christ, who is the Lord and the head of the church, and the body is supposed to reflect the glory of the head. Christ is the witness, and he receives the glory. And he, he says here, uh, this bond is strengthened and been for your sake. I will forgive as you have forgiven, and we're both obeying Christ, and we're doing this in the presence of Christ. Verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Another translation might say schemes there. What is Satan doing in the church? He does not want forgiveness. What does he want? Bitterness and anger and wrath and clamor and evil speaking that has to be put away with all malice. That's Ephesians 4, 31, which comes right before 32, to be kind and forgiving as Christ has forgiven. Satan wants us to hold on to other people's sins and not let them absorb the, the pain that their sin has caused us. Anytime someone sins against us, we give them the silent treatment. We put them in the doghouse. We are in charge because they have wronged us. And we're not treating them as God treats us. We're treating them like we're their master and they're our slave. And Christ's unity here in forgiveness is a discerning unity. Discernment is not a bad thing. It's a very, very, very good thing. You have to have discernment in everything. Whether it's financial discernment, should you invest in this or that, or discernment on this afternoon, how are you going to spend your time with how you're going to work tomorrow and how you're going to parent, how you're going to discipline, how you're going to discipline yourself. All these questions require discernment. What are you going to eat? How much are you going to eat? All that takes discernment. The reason for standing with other believers and Christ in this passage is so that there is unity in the fight against Satan. Fighting against Satan requires knowledge of his schemes. Let's go back to John 8, and look at one verse that summarizes the schemes of Satan. What is Satan up to in the world? If you look at a definition in a Webster's Dictionary that I looked at years ago, one of the definitions of Satan is this, simply, the enemy of mankind. And why in the world would people want to worship Satan is beyond me. Because why would you want to worship your enemy? That makes no sense. If he is your enemy, and he is, God made hell and the lake of fire for whom? The devil and his angels. God did not make hell for believers or for humans. And he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And there are people alive today that are doing Satan's work and they don't realize it. There are people alive in Jesus' day who are doing Satan's work and didn't realize it until Jesus exposed that to them and they weren't happy with him in John 8. In John 8, verse 44 Jesus is telling them, if God were your father, verse 42, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Why can they not bear to hear 
Jesus' word. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. What is Satan's desires? He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So we cannot be ignorant of his devices. Satan's motive is destruction. He wants to destroy every single person on the face of the earth. He wants to destroy every single marriage, every single parent-child relationship, every single church, every single person's individual's trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to destroy all of that. He's a destroyer. And his method is mentioned here in verse 44. He speaks lies. How does he destroy people? By causing them to believe lies. Look back at the Garden of Eden. Has God really said, you shall not surely die? You won't surely die. He's lying to Eve. Why is he lying to her? So that she'll be destroyed. And she was destroyed. Satan, we cannot be ignorant of his devices. And there are many other devices as demonic activity was rampant during the time of Christ. You can see when Satan had his way with people, their lives were destroyed. They were scary people to be around. And Satan was exposed as who he really was. And no verse does that better than John 8, 44. So Satan loves to divide believers. He loved the divisiveness that caused 1 Corinthians to have to be written. He loved this guy living in incestuous, wicked relationship with his stepmom. He loved that. He loved the church, allowed that to happen. And he loved that this church, even though they, they, this guy was repentant after he was disciplined, he loved the fact that they weren't willing to accept him right back in, that he is off by himself with all this sorrow and not allowed back in the church. And Paul says here, we don't want to be outwitted by Satan. We need to stand in unity together in forgiving because we are not ignorant of his designs. Satan loves to divide believers from each other, their leaders, and from Christ, like divorce, like bitterness, like disgruntled members leaving, like a distraction of daily, any distraction of your, your and my daily communion with Christ. Satan is behind it. He is tempting us. So why do you want to encourage believers to forgive others? Is it that you, the believers in Christ, can be unified in standing against the wiles of the devil? We need each other in the church. We need godly leaders to help us know and walk with Christ. I'm not the only godly leader here. There are other godly men that I look to and that I am accountable to and that we talk about things all the time. And I need them, and they hopefully uh, might at some times need me. And we need each other. We most of all need a vibrant, growing relationship with our Savior, enjoying forgiveness from Him and knowing what to do when other people sin against us and are repentant. We know how to forgive them. We're going to pray and have uh, three, three men. I've asked Dave Patnod to come and pray uh, for our discipline that our discipline would show Christ's care in our homes.
in our own lives. Then I've asked Hutch to come and pray that our forgiveness would show Christ's comfort. And then Craig's going to close our time before we sing, and he's going to pray and ask that we would show, our discernment would show our unity with Christ and other believers against Satan.